This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Reporters Without Orders. Order, order. Welcome to Reporters Without Orders, a podcast where we discuss what made news, what didn't and some things that shouldn't have. For today's discussion, we are joined by desk writer Gaurav Sarkar. Hi Gaurav. Hi Jerry. Welcome back. You were sick last week. I was sick last week and I was out of town on the weekend working. Uh-huh. Uh, but this week, Ayesh Tiwari, our head of research, is unwell. So we're not going to talk about Harvest TV, I'm guessing. <laughs> uh, well, what do I say? I think it's just Noida. This was quite the Delhi sharp take on Uttar Pradesh, but I just have to say for the record that I love Noida. Okay. Uttar Pradesh is Paris, right? This could go on for a while. <laughs> Ayush spent two days at Aligarh Muslim University getting to the bottom of what really happened between Republic TV and AMU students. First part of his story is up on our website. He couldn't be here to talk about it, but do check out his report on newslaundry.com. Gaurav, what will you be talking about today? Uh, there'll be three stories that I'll be talking about. Uh, it's been a pretty eventful week since last Monday. So you'll be taking all the footage? I'll be taking most of the footage. But uh, on a more serious note, all three stories are very important in their own place. You know, one of them is a, is, is a News Laundry exclusive about this uh, Muslim fortnightly newspaper called the Milli Gazette, which was apparently strong-armed into shutting down by the Delhi police. The second story is when I uh, visited the family of one of the martyred soldiers who uh, died in the terror attack in Pulwama on 14th February. Uh, that was reported from Uttar Pradesh. And the third one is the more recent Cobra Post expose, which uh, is which is actually a sting operation, which is what Cobra Post is known for. And it shows 36 Bollywood celebrities, including musicians and actors and singers, uh, willing to take money in exchange for doing something called proxy propaganda for political parties. So this isn't like the first Cobra Post expose that you're covering or News Laundry is covering for that matter. We'll be talking about that in a bit. But I would like to say that we will also be joined by a Kashmir-based journalist, Safat Zargar, over the phone. Uh, Safat reports for The Scroll and he's earlier worked for the Indian Express Online, Scoop Kashmir Life. Safat was on the ground on Feb 14th when the attack in Pulwama took place. 40 plus CRPF personnel were killed. So he'll be talking about what he really saw on the ground. Later, we will also be joined by Jayashree Bajoria, author of the latest Human Rights Watch report. The report is called Violent Cow Protection in India, Vigilante groups attack minorities. She will be joining us from New York over the phone. I'm actually looking forward to that discussion. So with the introductions done, Gaurav, it's going to be really packed. Let's just get started with the podcast. What do you say? Sure. But before that, dear listeners, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox or any other podcast app, please do visit our website www.newslaundry.com to check out other cool stuff that we have been doing. Like your own video? Are you talking about that? My own video, my three bylines, what do I say? Too much. So why don't you begin with the Cobra Post story? Sure. So uh, this was a recent Cobra Post expose that took place on Tuesday. If you guys remember, the last DHFL story that happened was was a very text and number heavy story that a lay reader couldn't get their mind around. You know, you couldn't really get down to cracking the numbers and what exactly what exactly was the illegal contention that played out in that story. However, this one is a 60-minute documentary investigative film, what they call it. I'd, I'm just going to refer to it as a sting operation, in which 36 Bollywood celebrities have been caught on camera by Cobra Post undercover rec- reporters. And uh, they have been agreeing to uh, take large amounts of money, most of it in cash, which is actually black money, in exchange for uh, posting positive proper propaganda for political parties. This process is known as proxy campaigning because, uh, you know, it, it's it's actually very different than an endorsement. If, if an actress is endorsing, say, like a Dettol or a toothpaste, if I'm watching an ad with her face in it, I will know that she's being paid for this. Hmm. But if you're going to pose something as your own personal opinion to try and, uh, you know, probably brainwash the people who are looking at you. In fact, some of the actors even use the word brainwash. Some of them quote huge sums of money. And what, what really sticks out in this story is that although it's a very entertaining 60-minute film to watch, uh, it's just the sheer brain of the Bollywood actors that shows you that it's not really the first time that they're being approached with some with an offer like this. I mean, to be honest, I didn't really find it that shocking given that there are no actual A-listers. Mm-hmm. It's like you stinging on the all the people who do not have as much reach. Mm-hmm. And also given that these are Bollywood actors, I mean, if they're getting paid to put out stuff then, I mean, what's the big sting? So, okay, uh, this is exactly what's been pointed out by a couple of people till now. The most important fact is that 
the electorate or the viewers need to be need to know that the actor or actress is being paid to do a particular promotion if you do not know that then you believe that they are doing this from their own will from their own conscience and this is what they believe in the second part to it is that uh, i don't believe or i don't think that it's only fair to go after big fish tomorrow probably if rajnath singh doesn't say something but sambit patra does i'll probably hold it in you know equal contempt that way that is politics we're talking about bollywood but uh, this is bollywood with politics right i mean they're doing it for a political party they're not doing it for an ad agency so you're saying the political opinions that these people put out not just about private companies or private mm-hmm. bands is shown as their own personal opinion exactly yeah and so it would have been better probably if they put it out like paid partnership or in collaboration which instagram has been doing for a lot of you can actors. you can do a paid partnership or a collaboration or you can just do a straight up endorsement which puts the contract on paper but in this case the cobra post reporters made it very clear that the undercover reporters made it very clear that this was a pre-election agenda pushing propaganda exercise that was supposed to happen and the main red flag in the story is okay fine you know maybe you're an actor and your image is built on whatever you want to show to the world but when it comes to brazenly taking money in cash yeah in cash so for example shakti kapoor was someone who was named in the 36 people the other names include amisha patel jackie shroff and these and I, and, and i don't think like jackie shroff or someone like shakti kapoor is really a small fish cuz they've made enough money in the industry to sit on it for the rest of their lives but for them to take 80 to 90% of the money in cash obviously raises the question that there is a backdoor mechanism that converts this black money to white so i mean The next question I want to ask is I saw that your Twitter was blowing up definitely yeah, but I didn't see a lot of others covering the Cobra posting as much as they covered let's say the sting on DHFL. the media houses or DHFL for that sure. matter. So in fact uh, when 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 the DHFL expose happened the uh, Delhi Press Club room was completely packed. Today it, that really wasn't the case I'm guessing most of the entertainment beat reporters showed up and that is why your mainstream news will not be blowing up. But you know except for maybe Janta ka reporter or some or one two other cases here and there your mainstream news won't be blowing up what happened with dhfl was your business outlets your business newspapers and your mainstream newspapers all of them carried the news in some format or the other so it drew way more traction and let's i mean over there the figure was about 36000 crores here it's just about 36 bollywood faces also my last question on the subject sure. before moving on since you have a lot of things to talk about is you've covered two of cobra posts mm-hmm. thing right so i mean what does it say about an organization quote unquote news organization which is just doing stings why not do investigative reportage which is on ground investigations so cobra post prides itself in doing its stings yeah i think uh, that is what they're known for but if you look at the dhfl story that's not really a sting you know uh, there there's no one really who's caught on ca- on a hidden camera saying something out of line or showing human behavior that they were not supposed to show at that time knowing that there's that that they're on record this one is very different and uh, i guess people who are on different sides of the coin will look at it differently but even bringing out the true moral character of someone even if they aren't aware that you know it's a sting operation i guess that's all that also holds its place in in a newsroom Moving on, I want to focus on the attack that happened in Pulwama on Feb 14th where more than 40 CRPF personnel lost their lives. So we'll be going to Safat Zarkar who is joining us from Kashmir. Hi Safat, welcome to Reporters Without Orders. Hi, thanks. So Safat, could you tell us a little bit more about the Feb 14 attack that happened in Pulwama and since you were on the ground, could you tell us what did you witness on the spot? Okay, uh, so uh, so basically i mean i was uh, on that day i was actually uh, since since morning i was in south kashmir only uh, for another story and uh, the moment i reached srinagar i just got a, a whatsapp message saying that there is a blast and i rushed to the spot but we were sort of stopped some 3 or 4 kilometers away from the spot on highway by army and uh, they were not allowing us to move i mean all the journalists including photojournalists and then we started walking <laughs> towards the spot mm-hmm. and yeah and then eventually when we reached closer to the camp then there were this army personnel who stopped us told us to like go back you know we're not allowing any anyone go to go there and uh, so basically eventually uh, we reached the spot at around some 6 6:30 pm and but they didn't allow us to go to the exact spot so it was like we were we went to the closest uh, sort of they allowed us to 
so that is the extent we went to yeah so what did you witness on the ground like when you were there were there a lot of people what did you see what was the impact of the blast yeah the, so the basically it was and the entire stretch of this highway was deserted it was manned by secure, i mean army and police vehicles there were ambulances were rushing in and all these i mean sort of uh, so police personnel vehicles were going uh, up and down so i mean it was there was no civilian i didn't see any civilian at all uh, i mean moving on that stretch secondly there was huge traffic chaos because it was a busy day and uh, like uh, people used this highway to go from south kashmir to srinagar and travel back from srinagar to south so it is like a very busy highway so that this sudden attack actually triggered a lot of tra- traffic crises mm-hmm. so we took a lot of like detours to i mean sort of to try to reach to the spot but i mean we were not allowed and this entire stretch was sort of put under like tight security and they were not allowing us to sort of go uh, to the spot uh, the only information we the only way we could inform get information about the incident was like uh, talking to police officials and crpf officials on phone and i was constantly sending updates to my like uh, office about like the death toll and what is the situation and uh, that is how i mean the day unfolded until eventually i sort of uh, went to ba- back to my office in shrinagar okay uh, hi sir fat gorov here yeah yeah hi so uh, you know you just said that y'all weren't allowed exactly to the spot you know if i'm not wrong all the media personnel were not allowed exactly to the spot where the incident occurred so exactly, exactly. so so roughly how how far were you guys you know because we've cause we've seen uh, we've seen some pictures that actually show proper close up so was it was it like some were allowed some were not allowed or, or? No, yeah so basically what happened that uh, in the first initial minutes of the blast mm-hmm. so whosoever actually could reach there they allowed him because even the security personnel didn't know what was happening so mm-hmm. it was like so uh, so when we reached mm-hmm. i mean when more and more reporters came in mm-hmm. sort of the ob van started uh, moving towards the spot they stopped them because they thought that i mean it had had their own precautions for that okay. but uh, like in the initial hours whosoever could make it they actually did and the, all only those pictures actually came out okay i mean those are those are the photographers photos i mean which you see i mean they didn't allow in every sort of journalist to move to the, towards okay. the spot okay you know i actually had yeah. another question and uh, so we so we've read a lot of reports even in the local uh, even in the local papers in kashmir about mm-hmm. uh, about the convoy that was traveling from to Srinagar if i'm not wrong and it was a 70 plus vehicle convoy if 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 i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. it was 78 vehicles but it was traveling from uh, south kashmir to srinagar it was coming it was from traveling Germany. from south kashmir to srinagar right and it was traveling on a yeah. highway that is supposed to be very busy yeah it this so, highway is see the like this is a very new uh, i mean newly built highway this connects mm-hmm. uh, from National Highway in South Kashmir to the Srinagar, uh, I mean Srinagar, the okay. capital city, Srinagar. Okay. So this is a uh, yeah, this is a very this is a very busy highway in a sense like people uh, the old road is not in su- such a good condition and mm-hmm. so civilians and like soldiers and all the I mean all the private vehicles move on this highway because okay. there is no traffic and it's like very well built. So it's there is a lot of movement sure. on this sure. highway actually. So you know you yeah. know what I was wondering was that if if it's anyway a busy highway you know and uh, there's already a convoy. of so many vehicles going uh, isn't mm-hmm. it by default as like protocol to do a recce of the particular road or the stretch that you're going to be traveling through you know a isn't isn't that protocol in itself that uh, security personnel army anyone is supposed to do when such a large convoy is going and did anyone mm-hmm. you know did anyone you know or has any of the papers even as to why was there not a recce done how did we not know that there was a car that was you know around such a large convoy No, so basically, uh, they have to understand one thing that uh, according to like CRPF, I mean the uh, security establishment, mm-hmm. the, uh, they have there are standard operating procedures. Like there are there are road opening parties. Who, uh, so this highway is totally sort of uh, patrolled by I mean always patrolled by these security person. They are deployed there throughout the day okay. for this particular this uh, convoy moment. Okay. Secondly, in the morning they sort of sanitize this area for uh, explosives and IEDs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now the second thing here is that this highway has Lot of lot of uh, link roads from which uh, like uh, which cuts through the villages. So it is, uh, I mean, from a, a car coming from any village or any other area, it can come. It can come from one of the smaller villages so and not from like, the main highway. Uh, I mean, villages or other I mean residential areas. So it, there are a lot of point okay. uh, entry points on this highway. Okay. Uh, okay. Particularly, particularly this stretch. 
so it is i don't think like it it must have been sort of it, it is possible to think that it was following the convoy it could have actually the the car could have actually come sort of uh, come on the highway at any point i mean mm-hmm. whichever wherever it wanted to and sort of followed it and then rammed it into one of the buses of the crpf just to yeah. answer gorov's point i think gorov a lot of people have been asking this question mm-hmm. at least journalists on twitter because there was a an intel information put out a screenshot uh, of input put out that there was intel about ieds being used and which is why a lot of questions is being asked if there was intel stating that you should sanitize the area was the area not sanitized how could a car come from come and attack the convoy mm-hmm. so that question is being asked safat my next question to you was you also profile the attacker right mm-hmm. so could you tell us a little bit more about the attacker what you found out and also was it challenging to profile the attacker given that there has been criticism that profiling the attacker gives more legitimacy to the attacker do you find any mm-hmm. merit to that criticism so uh, the first question i mean uh, you asked about is this like uh, why was like if the area was sanitized so basically this was first of all this was not an id planted somewhere this was an uh, explosives in a car moving in a car so it was like a traveling bomb first of all secondly the, the, so secondly like uh, even if they have sent the area it doesn't necessarily mean that a car cannot come from anywhere i mean, I mean uh, the police is actually investigating on that where from the car came so uh, i don't think i mean uh, like if there is intelligence input about possible ieds so you might look for ieds in in maybe a station car or some cylinder or some bag i mean whichever is placed i mean sort of discreetly at the highway but it is not so it was a car which rammed into the convoy and about intelligence input is that in south kashmir you have a cordon search operations and violence every day so this in these inputs are actually very regular to i mean to be precise that it is not new that there is an uh, intelligence intelligence input some reports say that there were three intelligence inputs but uh, what i'm trying to actually assert that these are very common to say it is very common to say that like uh, intelligence input was there but yeah but i have also spoken to police officials regarding this but they said that they, they had input but it was not specific and uh, which because actually because of I mean, the ambiguous sort of, nature uh, uh, everyone talks about in retrospective but i think uh, the issue here is like it is very common for an in, any intelligence input in kashmir so that, that is the one of the and second thing you asked is about the profile profile the attacker so basically uh, on the day uh, of this blast uh, this boy lives some 10 kilometers away from the spot and uh, it was just within uh, within half an hour of the within 2 hours of the blast it was confirmed by jash that he is the guy and there was video released by him so yeah it was very challenging to go to the place because uh, the weather was like it was raining and there are a lot of lot of huge number of people rushing to his home to pay sort of uh, uh, offer condolences and other things uh, so yeah and there is always this tension with the people that you can sort of be a journalist they don't if you are from an like an new delhi based uh, television i mean media house there is always this potential that uh, people do not like you because uh, there is this tendency among people that you don't tell the real story so that was the issue that was one of the challenges and but eventually when we reached there i spoke to the family i spoke to his uncles i spoke to his i mean relatives who were who were there in that situation and i profiled that now the question is like why i profiled him the thing is that this question actually emanates from the kind of atmosphere we have in actually in india currently because like this expecting that we will not talk about a suicide bomber and a crpf soldier is like i mean it has a lot to do with what is the socio political environment in india this time it is not that uh, you cannot write about these boys for secondly he he this is the first i mean this after 19 years this is a boy with the local who has decided to blow blow himself up you will you will see a lot of militants uh, local militants you will see a lot of i mean anger among uh, youth in kashmir but this was like a this was a different thing this was totally a different thing and i as a reporter was very curious to know like actually what actually happened to him which actually uh, which i have actually put in the story that what were the factors i mean i have tried to tell through the story that what actually led to his i mean this decision i don't know i mean if i have been able to do that justice with that but i don't think like uh, this we uh, by talking about him or by writing about him we ignored any other kind of story it was just 
telling all the sides of the story. Now coming to specific part of the question is why didn't you talk about other like so- soldiers? The thing is that our main story was that only that that is why I went to the spot at the first place that what happened at the spot. And this was my second priority and that is why how I did it. So we were doing all the sides. We were trying to, as an organization we were trying to get all the sides done. So that is why I mean as a reporter i went to the family just to give some context to our readers safat is talking about the profile of 19 year old adil ahmed dhar who was also known mm-hmm. as a wakas commando and he was from mm-hmm. gudibagh in south kashmir's pulwama district uh, yeah, yeah. safat you mentioned that uh, through the story you tried bringing out multiple factors as to why dhar did what he did could you elaborate on any two of these factors very briefly yeah So uh, first of all I mean uh, you have to actually contextualize his uh, whatever he has done I, I mean his joining of the militancy he was this boy was in his 10th class 10th standard and one day he was returning from his school it's this is I'm talking about 2016 and uh, uh, his parents I mean his father told me that he was stopped by these SOG personnel who are actually in Kashmiri uh, uh, parlance they are considered to be a notorious force for their alleged human rights violations it's a, like a police wing which essentially deals with encounters and counter insurgency so it, uh, he was stopped by these uh, soldiers and he was asked sort of he was harassed and he was asked to rub his nose on the ground now there is a specific context here in Kashmir in Kashmir this rubbing of nose it has a different meaning it 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 is actually a you can say it is a very humiliating act as far as i mean in the in the social i mean atmosphere here secondly he was asked to make a round of this uh, jeep police jeep through by his nose i mean striking a line by his nose so his father said ki like for entire two years till his joining in may to may 2018 uh, march 2018 he joined militancy he kept mentioning this incident again and again saying that why did they dist- they do this to me why did they i mean sort of harass me secondly this boy was very i mean passionate about azadi protest in uh, in kashmir i mean which i mean uh, all of these teenage most of the teenagers in kashmir are so during the burhanwani uprising he was part of these protests and all that and he even got a bullet in his leg for which he was sort of uh, hospitalized i mean he was under sort of treatment for 3 months but after that uh, the family says he went to his i mean he stopped uh, he uh, cleared his class 12 examination and went for a religious course and also started working at his home because he was like his father was not home he used to sell clothes on his cycle from going villages to villages so he would take care of his family and uh, and i mean do the i mean menial jobs also to sustain his family but one day on march uh, 18 he just went he just came home for the lunch uh, and just went and then didn't come back second thing is his cousin uh, manzoor ahmed uh, manzoor rashid dar who lives like in an adjacent home uh, i mean then they have the same compound the two families so he was also a militant lashkar militant he joined in 2016 and he was killed within 11 days of his joining and after that this manzoor's brother Uh, another brother tausif uh, who is also ta- adil's cousin he also went to join militants and after 14 days he returned but when he returned after 14 days i mean after joining militants so police uh, these family assured police and i mean administration that they will make him uh, make his passport get his passport made and send him to dubai uh, somewhere i mean basically get him out of here so that he doesn't go to this line again but according to the family within 3 or 4 days he was arrested again and now he is detained under public safety act which is i mean uh, as you are aware i mean you may be aware that is the act i mean which under which you can be detained without trial for 2 years i so mean and there is no i mean it is being used under i mean it is being used so rampantly in kashmir that i mean it's called a lawless law so i mean so the family was actually asserting that if i was te- we were telling adil like to, to to return from militancy wouldn't he question us the, the same way that what what did tausif get after surrendering isn't he in jail again so there is a grievance about the entire structure how it operates Safad, uh, so Safad, so, if yeah. I could just quickly jump in there, mm-hmm. you know, we've spoken about what what you saw at the ground when the incident happened, and uh, mm-hmm. and also in mm-hmm. the immediate aftermath of the incident, what happened with the attacker himself, what's his background. What I also wanted to mm-hmm. know was, you know, since uh, all the all the leading newspapers and uh, channels did carry the news of this instantly the next day on their front pages on prime time, uh, did you notice mm-hmm. any visible difference between the way local Kashmiri papers covered the incident and the way mainstream news? news did 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that is that is like a that is a glaring difference there because you, I mean, for the national media, I mean, in New Delhi, I mean, uh, if you if we talk about papers, newspapers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it was easily, I mean, uh, you can you can say that uh, there was this clearly clear cut, I mean, misunderstanding about what is the ground situation there. Like you easily jump onto Pakistan, you easily jump onto surgical strikes and all that, but. But the local papers, what local papers did is like try to sort of contextualize it in a way that what led to his killing, what led to his joining, and who are who are who, where is it operating? What is Jash's sort of, uh, I mean, kind of activities uh, in North Kashmir? And actually, they try to locate it. The local reporter try to locate it in the larger anger or the larger violence Kashmir has seen in the, the past four years, particularly mm-hmm. since 2014 and 2016. Mm-hmm. So they try to lo- contextualize it in in it that way. But but for the like in New Delhi media and, and there are exceptions always there, but there are I mean particularly TV news. It was just like jumping the gun, like this has been done. That okay. I mean clearly going. I mean basically making a sort of easy guess like what would what happened. But it is not like. But it I think there was more nuance in local Kashmiri uh, newspapers about this incident than I mean the national media. Sure. Yeah. Safat, I just have two last questions for you. One. Mm. Mm. Talking about reportage, I mean, there are different voices when it comes to reporting on Kashmir, right? Militants, mm. uh, the army personnel, Ikhwanis, local people, and everybody has different interests. So as a reporter, when you're writing about Kashmir, how do you ensure that there's objectivity or how do you ensure that you get the story which is not covered in narratives of different people, but it is what actually is happening on the ground yeah so basically i mean uh, it's it's always a challenge to report in a place like kashmir because as if you are sort of uh, trying to get information from the official sources or if you want people to talk on record they will they will not because every uh, i mean uh, particularly uh, in con- conflict there are various interests so they will not let you i mean sort of there is there is always a problem with access and that is and i, I want to highlight one point here that it is precisely with local kashmiri journalists so if a journalist is sort of para shoot it from New Delhi, you will see within the administration, you will see like uh, there is a clear difference between sort of access the person that journalist is allowed to have rather than a local journalist. So that is one thing. But I think as far as the question goes, like how do you ensure it? Like I think the most what we do as a report, uh, what we do as a reporter is like first of all to ensure that we are on ground and try to find, talk to, to more and more people as we can sort of and verify whatever because verify all the aspects of it because uh, you don't have any official uh, sort of confirmation about these incidents and whenever you talk to authorities about these things either there is an outright denial or either there is no response so in a way the, uh, the this lack of access to this official confirmation or official sources or even official information from the officials i mean from the government side actually is a lot of challenge in the in, in our reporting and the precisely that I mean sometimes maybe may lead someone to believe that, that a particular narrative is being sort of federal but it is not it is not the case that is not the case it is like just like that if you have access if you have I mean very uh, uh, sort of cordial relationship to the media as far as sharing information goes then it might work but the, the, the thing is that the state here operates on a different trajectory which has sort of uh, which actually tries to hide a lot of things. So you have to have a lot of sources or you can say a lot of, you have to make a lot of efforts to actually get information here. Yeah. And my second and final question to you is, we were speaking about how photos surfaced, right? Given that you're covering a conflict area. So do you think it is okay or do you think should pictures which show blood and body, should these be made public? Or what is the caution that journalists should exercise? See, personally, if you ask me, I will, uh, I will, uh, I will try to avoid. I mean, showing the kinds of uh, pictures, not for like, uh, not for less purpose that it might create some tension in the society. But it actually the problem with entire this imagery is that it dehumanizes and desensitizes uh, and a human being about what is happening. So, I mean, internet and social media is always full of these uh, pictures, kind of these. So, I think as journalists and I mean, a photographers precisely, uh, one should try to avoid this thing because that actually sort of normalizes this kind of violence or I mean this imagery in the society so personally I don't want these things to be captured or shared yeah okay thank you so much for joining us Safat
Thank you so much. So Gaurav, we just spoke to Safat, right? And he told us why he profiled the attacker. Mm-hmm. So you profiled one of the martyrs' yes. families. You were in Uttar Pradesh. Yes. Could you tell us what did you see on ground? Sure. So um, I left in the middle of the afternoon, and it was supposed to be a three-hour road, but I reached there after sunset. And it's a really small village, Shamli. Shamli also has, and it's a it's a really small tehsil in Uttar Pradesh, which has about four to five villages, and. Surprisingly enough, Shamli has a record of churning out people who join the army on a daily basis. There were a lot of people who joined the army who really? joined. Yeah, they in fact, and in fact, uh, the 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 soldier who I profiled. Pradeep Kumar. There was another soldier who was also martyred in the same attack from a neighboring village. But since both the uh, salami and the rights were coinciding, I could not cover the second one as well. But what stands out about uh, Shamli is that the sheer number of people who they produce who join the army, everyone knows it. So I want to share a really funny thing uh, with with the listeners that I was really paranoid that I wouldn't be able to get access to the family, not only because it's a time of grief, but also because I was reaching well after sunset. It was about eight eight thirty, and in places like Shamli Tehsil. The place is just it. It becomes like phantom land after six p.m. So as soon as you enter the lane towards the soldier's house, uh, there were a group of about ten to fifteen men, along with children, who were putting up a board. You know, at that time in the night, who were putting up a board with the posters and candles, and that was just the general mood before you even hit the village. And after that, like things kept unraveling. I met the family. I met the son, in fact, and that is what my story was. I I didn't want to do a profile on the village or the incident or the soldier himself i wanted to say the story through his son's eyes his son is 18 years old his name is siddharth and uh, this boy was just being bombarded with questions with 10 15 camera lights flashing at him etc etc so we so i took him to his room and i spoke to him and uh, one of the things that pains me the most is that he said you know in probably my 18 years of life i have only spent about 1 to 2 years with my father because he's always away on duty and even the last time i was saying bye to him which was 2 days before the attack happened i'd gone to buy milk from the shops so by the time i came back he was already ready so all i could do was just drop him so i didn't even get time to you know say a proper goodbye and what really really stood out about siddharth and what i've made a point in my article as well is that he refused to shed a tear you know he has a younger brother he has a mother who was you know who was who was hysterical at the, at the, at the time this happened but he refused to shed a tear because he said that the my father repeatedly told me that if anything ever happens to me you will have to stand up you know you will have to take up the mantle and be strong for the rest of the family so just like you were on the ground and profiling one of the martyrs there were several other uh, profiles of other mm-hmm. martyrs that reporters had sure. covered so what stood out to you from these profiles are you asking me what was different in my profile as compared to the others that were no, coming out no i'm asking out? if there was something you thought that the others missed or was there something that really stood out to you from one of the profiles okay so i'll tell you what what i perceive it as it might not be true but it just feels like a lot of the reporters out there had a list of about 8 to 12 martyrs from each state and you obviously cannot devote so much time to each of them right so you go about asking the same blanket three questions to the same three family members from each of them and that is what probably takes away from the story in a certain way you at, at least i feel that you need in these kind of stories you need to give it a more personal touch and hell yeah man of course the family deserves way more face time than you just getting your bites and getting out of there what do you think of safat's profile of the attacker do you think we should profile attackers i definitely think we should profile attackers i mean uh, there's nothing that says that we shouldn't cuz it it doesn't really take away from anything all it does is give you a view of the other side of the coin so there's nothing really morally or ethically wrong with profiling attackers moving on gorav i will come back to you about your third story sure. which is about mili gazette but let's go directly to jayshree to talk about her report and the criticisms that the report has been facing hi jayshree welcome to reporters hi thank you for having me charan so jayshree uh, human rights watch has just released the report that you authored could you tell us a little bit more about your report? uh sure uh this report is called violent cow protection in india and it looks at you know the rise of uh, hindu nationalist groups that uh, have uh, used this issue of cow protection for political purposes um and it has enabled these so called cow protection groups uh, to spring up across india uh, but especially in bjp ruled states where they think they have political patronage and they will be protected and these groups you know they're made up of young hindu men who are patrolling the streets who are uh, uh, stopping uh, trucks transporting cattle and if they find cows you know they are beating up 
the cattle traders, the truck drivers, and in some instances, even killing them. Uh, so, you know, there have been 44 people killed since 2015, out of which 36 are Muslims, mostly minority communities, Muslims and Dalits are targeted. And the report documents 11 such cases in which 14 people were killed and looks at the government response uh, in these killings. So, I mean, as a reporter, what? how did you go about corroborating these instances? So many, many of these cases, they're already in uh, at investigation stage. I only looked at the attacks in which people were actually killed uh, to understand how the police is investigating these cases. What we've and we used obviously police documents and uh, you know any any letters or correspondence by the victims' families. Uh, by by the you know the lawyers for the victims' families. So we looked at primary documents. Um, I interviewed family members of those who were killed, or some of them uh, were even witnesses in the violence. I also spoke to uh, some uh, former police officials, and uh, Human Rights Watch also wrote letters uh, to four of the states where the cases are, have been documented in the report from uh, Jharkhand, Rajasthan, Haryana, and Uttar Pradesh. Uh, unfortunately, we did, uh, Human Rights Watch did not get response from the state governments uh, or the police uh, in any of these cases. But um, yes, the corroboration was there were uh, interviews, testimonies, and all primary documents, police documents, as well as any investigation and court documents for those who have been in trial stage. Okay, uh, so Jayashree, let me just jump in there. And uh, what, what I wanted to understand was, in fact, I read the article this morning and uh, I wanted to understand a bit about, okay, so uh, you, you, the, the report speaks about how we have been the largest exporter for beef and for leather, right? Uh, I wanted to understand Not that, for leather, not the largest exporter for leather. One of? India one of the largest? N- one India uh, contributes, I believe, thirteen percent to the world's leather okay. um, export. But what? Uh, why? It's not the largest exporter, mm-hmm. but uh, income from leather, like foreign exchange from leather, mm-hmm. uh, is pretty big for India okay. because it's one of India's uh, sort of big export market. You know, uh, sort of uh, okay. products. Okay. So you know, so how much of how much of India's income? You know, can you give us a rough figure of how much of India's income would be hit roughly because of all? these attacks that we are linking to the decline in the export of these products? So, uh, India is the largest exporter of buffalo meat Mm -hmm. uh, in the world and the the meat worth about 4 billion US dollars a year. Uh, You know, however, after the BJP government came Mm -hmm. to power, the exports have mostly declined. Um, And in particular, you know, the the state of Uttar Pradesh, uh, where which is the top meat-producing state uh-huh. in the country, uh-huh. there, you know, the actions by uh, the chief minister shutting down of meat shops led to further uncertainties, you know, over the future of the trade. So in terms of numbers, if we look at, um, you know, in 2011-2012, there was a 52% growth in the export of buffalo beef. Uh, 2013-14 as well, there was almost a 36% growth in in the exports. Mm -hmm. Up till 2014-15, we continue to see growth, about 10% growth in 2014-15. But come 2015-2016, and it begins to decline. So, for example, in 2015-16, we saw a negative growth of 0.01%. It further declined by nearly 4% in 2016-17. Only in 17-18, we found that it recovered a little bit by another 3%. So we are talking about growth in double digits in this industry, in the in the trade, uh, which decline, which went into decline in a huge way. Uh, similarly, if we look at leather, India produces nearly 13 percent of the world's leather and its annual revenue is over 12 billion U.S. dollars. Exports are about five point seven billion dollars. Uh, another notable thing in this is actually. of the people who are employed in this, uh, you know, there are 3 million people employed and 30% of these are women. So, in fact, you know, in 2017, the Indian government had identified the leather industry as key to generating jobs and for growth. And yet, 
At the same time, a government survey had admitted that, you know, despite having a large cattle population, India's share of cattle leather exports is low and declining Correct. due to limited availability of cattle for slaughter. Correct. So this, this was noted by a government's own survey. And again, if we look at numbers, you know, the export of leather and leather products had grown by over 18% in 2013-14, 9% in 2014-15. However, by, you know, in uh, we begin to again see decline in 2015-16, where it goes down by nearly 10%, continues to go down the year later by another, th you know, 3%. And then it only again picks up, we see in 2017-18, by only like 1.4%. Oh. So largely we are seeing huge decline in these two industries that are linked to cattle trade, to the agricultural economy. Correct. So first I want to ask you about, I mean, such reports where we're covering how cow vigilantism is sort of resulting in deaths and its linkage to Hindutva often sees a lot of criticism. So I mean, what I want to ask is, have you, I know the report was just released, but has there been any criticism? And in such cases, how do you respond to such criticism that there's no linkage between cow vigilantism and killings because of cattle or cattle trade and Hindutva? See, cows are an emotional issue. Most, most Hindus consider cows to be sacred. But most states in India already have laws banning slaughter of cows. What we are seeing is a political campaign to use this issue of cow protection for political purposes to gain Hindu votes. And therefore, we have seen, you know, these uh, so-called cow protection groups spring up across the country. And, you know, they're particularly bad in BJP-run states because they feel they have political patronage. They feel they will be protected. And we, in fact, we have seen comments as well actions by uh, elected BJP leaders where they have defended the assaults and sometimes even legally assisted in the fight, you know, of some of these people who have been uh, accused of killing uh, people in the name of uh, cow protection. Unfortunately, the Indian government does not collect data. And one, one of the recommendations the report makes is that the government should collect data. Uh, and that also goes to the heart of some of the criticism that has been around the data and around the work that has been done um, by civil society organizations and media groups on this issue. So, Jayshree, I also wanted to ask, since you would have gone through a lot of media reports concerning cow vigilantism, concerning the deaths and lynchings, was this something that really stood out to you when you were going through these reports that you found was troubling or that was just very characteristic of Indian media? There has been some very good reportage on the issue. You know, of, uh, there have been uh, reporters who've done some really good investigative work. For instance, Neha Dikshit, uh, who's done some wonderful work in Haryana, looking at how the, you know, how the police frames these cases and then, you know, how they may be complicit in the crimes and even cover up in the crimes. And this is something uh, I found uh, in this work that I did for Human Rights Watch as well, that in many of these cases, police often stall investigations initially, even delay filing of the first information reports. Um, they file counter cases against the families and uh, witnesses in these cases, uh, so, you know, who often then are too scared to testify. And, uh, you know, at the, at the same time, there are even cases where police have been complicit or have tried to cover up the crimes. So this is this is something we I, I found in uh, many much of the much of the media reportage by some some really good uh, places. India Spen comes to mind. Uh, there was a report by Citizens Against Hate as well. There's been a lot of work done by a lot of groups on the ground. They've been that they've been trying to provide legal aid as well as doing documentation in these crimes. Uh, what is required now is that the government must implement uh, you know enforce and implement the Supreme Court directives that came in uh, that came in last year where the Supreme Court had given some very good directives on how to address this uh, violence by mobs as well as to ensure that there is prompt prosecution and the victims and the witnesses are safeguarded there is a victim compensation scheme so all of that really has to be implemented without delay as well as there is a communal violence pending bill in, you know, and that, that has to be revived. It made uh, compliant with international human rights standards and India should actually have a law that 
addresses you know discrimination along religious and, and these are recommendations these are recommendations that are part of your report that is right yes so i mean uh, one last question is since as you've mentioned there has been coverage on the issue by different media organizations and different journalists so why do this now what's the purpose behind this report actually human rights watch did another uh, short report on this subject in 2016 and then last year as follow up i started looking at this work again uh, you know and every time uh, we thought about uh, releasing it there would be another pretty egregious case that happened uh, so for example in hapur you know last year we had the killing of kasim and beating up of samadin in uttar pradesh then we were planning to release it uh, you know soon after that but then the bulandshahar violence in uttar pradesh happened where uh, you know a police officer as well as a hindu man was killed um, and then we had to update the report and now we have this really troubling development where the you know the authorities are using this very repressive national security act against those who are accused in uh, cow slaughter we saw the uttar pradesh government using it first in january and unfortunately then we saw again uh, the new congress government in madhya pradesh doing it again in february uh, so these are the these have been really troubling developments and it 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 was time to document uh, you know uh, this work again and update it because not you know n- nothing really seems to be changing unfortunately hindu nationalism has been on the rise and those who are promoting hate you know are gaining strength uh, in india they're vilifying communities they're trying to impose their values on you know what people's food choices should be who they should love and this report this report uh, talks about that and i hope that some of these recommendations will be considered seriously correct so i mean my parting question to you would be would you consider yourself to be an activist or a journalist and if both where do you draw the line or where should one draw the res- line i'm a researcher okay i am a human rights researcher i look i document human rights violations uh that's what i do so for journalists who are reporting on such issues would you say there should be a line drawn between being an activist and a journalist or would you say those are part uh, two sides of the same coins and the journalists have to be both i think journalism is about investigating and exposing the truth and that's what you need to do okay thank you so much thank for joining you, thank us thank you so gorov we are back we're to you back. again we're back tell us about miligazet what really happened i haven't actually heard about this paper a lot so could you tell me more about the paper first sure so the mili gazette was a was a muslim oriented fortnightly newspaper that used to run from 2000 till 2016 the story that i reported on was actually an nl exclusive because it took a bit of time to actually realize what had happened and i also must admit there was a bit of sheer dumb luck involved in it uh, just just to give the listeners a small brief about the story the mili gazette was shut down at the end of 2016 by its editor obviously they had a financial crunch because they were a really small newspaper based out of jamia nagar but more than that they had published an article that created ripples across the indian media fraternity about how the ayush ministry was hiring people only belonging to certain castes and they have not hired any muslims for particular posts this was a story carried by mili gazette on their front page what is the circulation of mili gazette i'm guessing it was quite it was it was in the higher thousands at least till the end of 2016 because they had managed to run the paper for about 16 years so if you don't have the readership there's no way you can you know no matter how big a financial crunch you have you will have to probably tone down the number of papers that you're churning out every day but in this case they have a strong readership even today if you go to their twitter you'll see that they have a certain engagement with the community itself uh, but the story was about how they were shut down so in fact when they when they when they published this ayush ministry story a lot of the mainstream media also picked it up yeah and uh, obviously when i asked the editor you know did you expect any pushback he was like yeah we did expect some pushback but not the way it happened so i interviewed the editor of mili gazette zafrul you know and the entire story is told from his perspective along with the documents that we have got from delhi police in a nutshell the story was that after running this ayush ministry story the delhi police sent a notice a show cause notice to the paper and said that we have got a complaint filed against you by someone called pushp sharma pushp sharma was the name of the complainant funnily enough pushp sharma was actually the name of the reporter who filed the story for mili gazette so are even, these two the same people there is no way to authenticate that as of now there's no way to authenticate it because we don't know where pushp is no one knows where pushp is for the last 2 years 
the last we know of him is his own affidavit that Zafrul says he has with him. But the fact that the police said that there's a complaint letter by the same name as the reporter who had filed the story was a little paradoxical. As the story goes, Pushp was apparently picked up from his house, interrogated, sent to Tihar jail for a couple of days and he's been absconding after that. We don't know where he is. The most recent development that happened is after 2016 when the paper was shut down, uh, the editor had to go through some grueling sessions with CIC etc to you know make his case. But after two years of the paper shutting down and two days before we went to publish, Mili Gazette got an email from the Delhi police that said that the show cause notice has been revoked. Legally, you aren't allowed to revoke a show cause notice. It will always stand. So it was it was really confusing as to why would you revoke a show cause notice two years after the story has already gone to press and two years after the paper has been shut down. So Gaurav, I mean, to conclude, what would you say is the learning or the moral of the story? Mm, the moral of the story is something that's actually been around for a while, but we refuse to look at it, which is that Smaller publications will always have to face a tougher time when it comes to authorities and will always have to face a tougher time when it comes to breaking big news because they don't really have the manpower or the firepower to take on authorities or, you know, anyone who might be trying to pressurize them. So the bigger ones who have the power to take on authorities, who have the power to... So the bigger ones who have the power to quote-unquote take on authorities Mm -hmm. also have a lot of strings attached, right? Yeah, but... But you're saying that is the devil we have to choose. I'm saying that they can get out of a soup without putting in too much effort and you will never see something like a Times Now or a Republic being shut down. You will never, even if they get served millions of show cause notices, which I'm sure that they have, they will never be arm wrestled and pushed into shutting down shop. So I mean, given that a smaller news organization and a larger news organization both come with their own set of problems, Mm -hmm. I think I would ask the listeners to pay to keep news free and subscribe to independent and azad news organizations like News Laundry. Yeah, subtle plug. (laughs) So I guess that brings us to a close. Gaurav, do you want to share your recommendation? So I'd like to recommend this piece written by Ayush, our very own Ayush, who has stepped out of his comfort zone of the Harvest TV beat. And he's reported from Aligarh University. It's part one of a two-part series, I'm guessing, as of now. And that's one that definitely deserves a read about how it's basically the role of Republic at Aligarh Muslim University. So please do give that a read. I want to recommend a report that Scroll put out. It's titled Clean the Nation inside the Facebook group that plotted to get anti-national sacked and prosecuted. The reason why I'm recommending this is we spoke about uh, Pulwama and we spoke about the attack Mm. and the profiles of the martyrs and the attacker. So in the aftermath of the Pulwama attack, a lot of Kashmiri students, media professionals have been trolled and they have been threatened. A lot of Kashmiri students have gone back to Kashmir. So I mean, the Scrolls report gives us an insight into how this sort of is an organized attempt to target particular communities and people. So definitely read that. So that's a wrap for the episode. Thank you everyone who listens to us and writes to us. We do read your feedback and discuss it and I email them to Parikshit and the team. We also brainstorm about how to make things better. So if you guys have some more feedback, you can tweet to us or write to any of us at contact at newslaundry.com or if you all want to get in touch with Cherry, write to her at cherry at newslaundry.com. Also guys, remember, please pay to keep news free, azad and independent. To subscribe to News Laundry, you can visit our website www.newslaundry.com. Happy subscribing. And a big thank you to our producer Parikshit and Yay, Parikshit. for recording and Gaurav for his time. Thanks, Sherry. It was nice being on the show and I will see you next week. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. Catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport. Visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.